science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, welcome. I'm Joe Schwartz, and as you know, I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society. We try to demystify science for you guys, try to bring you up to date on what is happening, and uh, talk about some interesting stories in the news. And uh, just a little bit later, I have a great guest today, Dr. Miriam Diamond from University of Toronto, and she's a professor in the Department of Earth Science there and uh, also in, um, works uh, extensively in, in uh, environmentalism. And we're going to chat about uh, contaminants in the environment, about contaminants in jewelry, contaminants in, in clothing. And uh, I think uh, you will enjoy the conversation that, uh, that we're uh, going to have. All right, but to get started here today, uh, this morning I... Uh, Hope I tantalized people on the trivia show with my uh, question about a substance that was illegal in Canada but was uh, produced in Newfoundland before Newfoundland joined the Confederation and from where it was bootlegged into, into Canada. And uh, the question was, what uh, was that uh, substance? Well... Uh, margarine is what we're talking about here, and what an unusual story uh, this is. Uh, a law was passed in Canada in 1886 prohibiting the production of margarine, believe it or not. All right, well, before we get to that little story, I, I better give you a touch of a, a background here on, on uh, what uh, margarine is, is all about. Uh, obviously, we know it's about a substitute, and it was first produced in France in 1869. That's a long time ago, by Hippolyte Mesmouri, in response to a challenge by Emperor Napoleon III to create an alternative to butter. And uh, he did this from beef tallow. And uh, he did this because they needed something cheaper for people who could not afford butter, and also for uh, Napoleon's uh, army. Well, anyway... Mesmouri knew that butter was essentially milk fat and began to wonder where the fat came from. Since milk contained fat even when cows were undernourished and were losing weight, he concluded that milk fat came from the cow's body fat. Without enough food, the cow seemed to be sort of draining away. So the inventive chemist chopped up some beef fat, added a little bit of milk, minced in some sheep's stomach, for texture and cook the mixture in a slightly alkaline water to get something similar to butter. The concoction looked like butter, but it didn't taste great. It didn't have enough cow, as he said, <laughs> cow flavor. So Mejmuri uh, decided to add some chopped cow udder. And that apparently did the trick because in 1870, Napoleon III awarded him the prize that he had suggested would be available to anyone who came up for a substitute for uh, butter, and he presented him a factory to mass produce the new product. All that was needed now was a name. Well, well, well before 
the first production of margarine way back in 1813, Michel Chevreuil, another French chemist, had isolated an acidic substance from animal fat that formed intriguing pearly drops. He named it margaric acid from the Greek margaron for pearl. Since this margaric or margaric acid came from animal fat, which was also the source of Mejmuri's discovery, margarine seemed a suitable name. It later turned out that margaric acid was not a single substance, but rather a mixture of oleic and palmitic acids. Indeed, margarine can be made from any fat, including whale, seal, or fish oil. All right, now let's get down to the interesting Canadian uh, connection here. Uh, the dairy industry in Canada did not take kindly to this new intruder. And uh, there was fierce lobbying by the dairy industry to protect itself. And they actually got the Canadian government to pass a law in 1886 that prohibited the production of margarine. Now, at that time, Newfoundland was not yet part of Canada. And in 1925, the curiously named Newfoundland Butter Company was established and began to produce margarine from fresh oil, whale oil, and seal oil. And uh, margarine, of course, could be produced much more cheaply than butter and was bootlegged into Canada. When Newfoundland joined the Confederation in 1848, it was with the stipulation that it would be allowed to keep producing margarine. And this was granted, although sales to the rest of Canada were prohibited. But it wasn't long before the uh, edict was rescinded in Canada, that is the edict to ban margarine, because the provinces made the case that, look, if, if uh, Newfoundland is allowed to produce margarine, why shouldn't other provinces be allowed to produce it too? And uh, so the law was rescinded and uh, uh, margarine production was allowed. However, the provinces were given the right to control the way that this was to be produced and sold. And they implemented their own regulations very often about the color of the margarine. Some provinces required that the margarine should be colored, others, said that it can't be colored because they wanted some sort of distinguishing feature from butter. Now, butter usually is a slight yellow color from the beta carotene that is found in the, um, in the grass or the hay that the cows eat, although that is very variable depending on, uh, on, on the season and exactly what the cow's diet uh, is. But in any case, the idea was to make sure that the, uh, no one would confuse margin by, with butter just on site. So these regulations about coloring were uh, introduced. And uh, some provinces said that a color has to be added. Others uh, uh, required it to be colorless. Quebec, for example, did that. Anyway, by the 1980s, most provinces had lifted the restriction. But in Ontario, it was not legal to sell butter-colored margarine until 1995. Quebec was the last Canadian province to regulate margarine coloring, and uh, it was uh, finally repealed in uh, 2008. 
And uh, in Quebec, before that, margarine was required to be colorless. Uh, now it, uh, it can be colored. So there were a lot of acrimonious debates about margarine here in, in Canada, but it was even worse in, in, in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. in 1886, there was a law also uh, that levied large taxes on, on margarine. And some states uh, banned margarine outright. And uh, as you can imagine, some of the dairy states were the ones that were most upset. For example, Wisconsin. And the senator for Wisconsin at that time, Senator Joseph Quarles, thundered that butter should come from the dairy, not from the slaughterhouse. Here's a direct quote from him. I want butter that has the natural aroma of life and health. I decline to accept cow fat matured under the chill of death, blended with vegetable oils and flavored with chemical tricks. By 1902, 32 states had passed color laws with some demanding, believe it or not, that margarine be dyed pink. Well, this pink law, as it was called, was finally overturned by the Supreme Court. You know why? On grounds that it is illegal to enforce adulteration of, of food. Uh, margarine has been controversial ever since even though this color controversy seems to have, have died away. Uh, but the issue, of course, was transformed into a nutritional controversy because margarine evolved from being made out of beef fat to being made of hardened vegetable oils. And that, of course, was uh, uh, the whole controversy about trans fats because when you uh, pass hydrogen gas into unsaturated fats like vegetable oils, you create the saturated fats, but as a side product, you also uh, produce these notorious trans fats. And regulations now have been introduced to um, prevent uh, any excessive amount of trans fat in our diet, because it turns out that those trans fats, which refers to the specific geometry of the fat molecule, that these are as problematic as the uh, saturated uh, fats. Uh, but the, the opposition of the dairy industry to margarine has kind of declined uh, because uh, sales of margarine have declined and people are once again preferring butter because let's face it, uh, the taste is not exactly uh, the same. Uh, people generally go for margarine, not for the taste, but uh, because it is more economical. And just uh, one last note about the coloring business. Uh, when it was made illegal to color margarine, some manufacturers sold margarine with a separate little container of a dye. And uh, people were asked to mix the dye in after they had purchased the, uh, the margarine. And uh, that idea, of course, has also disappeared. All right. Uh, we are going to check traffic, and after that, we'll be back with my guest, Professor Miriam Diamond, University of Toronto environmental chemist, and we'll talk about some fascinating issues about chemical contaminants. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, as I mentioned, I'm very happy to have as my guest, Dr. Miriam Diamond from the University of, of Toronto, uh, who uh, is basically an environmental chemist, as I already told you earlier. 
And uh, I'd like to get into this, uh, Dr. Diamond, by first asking you how you got into it. Well, what has been your career path where you end up in this area of investigating chemical contaminants in the environment? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Schwartz. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. It's been a circuitous route. I have a varied background that started in biology, and in fact, I looked at uh, birds and bird behavior. Then I transferred into engineering, uh, specifically environmental engineering. Contaminants were very current at the time, and it's been a journey uh, towards looking at how the environment is exposed to looking at how people are exposed. The journey has been very much informed by being a mom. I mean, my kids are grown now. I looked when my kids were little at where they were playing in the sandbox, literally, the toys they were playing with. It caused me to really wonder about how they were exposed to chemicals as I was reading about chemical exposure in the literature. So that's been my journey. Yeah, well, that's an interesting path uh, triggered by personal, uh, you know, curiosity about your kids. That's that's really neat. Anyway, um, you've uh, been on Marketplace several times, and so I think many of our uh, listeners uh, know about you because I've promoted those programs uh, over the over the years. So let's uh, talk about some of those appearances. I know one that uh, was really quite intriguing was the jewelry that is sold to some kids and the cadmium contamination. So how did you get into into that, into jewelry and cadmium? Oh, that's very interesting. Yes. So the story goes that um, jewelry, especially lower quality jewelry, <clears throat> can contain some hazardous chemicals. Now you think, well, why should I bother about hazardous chemicals in jewelry? Because not just kids, but adults also, we play with our jewelry. We put our jewelry in our mouth sometimes, or it comes close to our mouth. It's right against our skin. That's particularly of concern for children, and it's of particular concern when the chemicals are really hazardous. It's been known for some time that inexpensive jewelry contain really can contain really hazardous chemicals like lead that uh, prompted us to follow the story of of looking at whether there were toxic chemicals like lead and cadmium in kids jewelry so that was quite a number of years ago we did it on two rounds uh, and we found on the first round that there were n numerous articles of jewelry, kids' jewelry, that exceeded, that were then provisional guidelines. Or as I recall, they were guidelines for lead, but provisional for cadmium. As a result of doing those shows and the interview with Health Canada, there was a change in regulation. The provisional guideline for cadmium restrictions was moved to a real guideline. Now, that's important because it gives the government the ability to do testing and to withdraw those products from the marketplace should they exceed regulations. There was actually a case of a child that, that was poisoned, that uh, endured lead poisoning as a result of exposure through her jewelry. So this is really a this is a real world issue. This is very much a real world issue. 
I'm very pleased, very and very proud to say that as a result of that great investigative work by CBC, that it has shifted the needle on toxics and kids' jewelry. It's holding companies accountable for the jewelry that they that they import and that they sell. It's specifically holding these holding large chemical uh, large retailers marketers accountable for the products that they sell. We should not be able to purchase hazardous products from the shelves of stores that we trust. Now, what do you think if if you buy some of this uh, jewelry in let's in the dollar stores? What is the chance that that has uh, been tested somewhere along the way? Oh, that's a great question. And let me just say, it's not just the mar- it's not just the dollar store. In marketplace, they specifically went to major outlets. They were not dollar stores. They were outlets that are very very popular. That's a really important point. It's an important point because um, certainly there's a justice component to this that we don't want any products affecting any sector of society to be marketed. So not just low income, middle income, all incomes. Um, now, what is the probability that jewelry is tested? Well, that is a good question to which I don't have an answer. The government does have a testing program, but it's limited. And it has to be limited because just consider the number of products that are available for purchase. It would be it's really impossible to do exhaustive testing. So um, for the, the analogy would be testing for food safety. We have the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, CFIA. And it does um, routine testing on a rotating basis. So the same product, for example, milk will be tested every few years and cheese and you name it will be tested um, with different frequencies. So there, I presume, but I don't know, that there's some routine testing that's done. But we do know that it's never enough and that products are always being, that, that products make their way to the shelves that contain hazardous chemicals. Um, if I may just add one more thing, supply chains are really complicated. So sometimes retailers and even the product producer does not necessarily know what's in their product. So absolutely, really I mean, the only way we know is by question. testing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, now we don't all wear jewelry, but we all wear clothes. And uh, I know that you did another segment on on marketplace about clothes, uh, particularly ones that were imported from China, uh, containing a number of chemicals of, of concern. What was the outcome of, of that? Did that also get a lot of publicity and uh, any changes in the way that uh, inspections are done or what is allowed, not allowed? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So it was another CBC Marketplace episode they purchased clothes uh, made uh, particularly fast fashion. Um, they purchased them from major fast fashion outlets. Um, some of it was just directly online, or if I'm 
might be recalling that most I didn't I didn't do the purchasing, so it might have all been online. I don't know where the clothes were made. We do know that uh, very little clothing is made in Canada. Um, I do know that you're speaking from Montreal, which used to have a very vibrant. Um, oh, we used to have a huge uh, uh, yeah. schmata industry, as it was called. <laughs> and uh, in fact, when uh, I was a student, I used to work. I, I worked on a knitting machine, believe it or not, which were just introduced at that time. Yeah, so I do know something uh, about this. So it's, it's interesting to get into this. But just hold that thought for a moment because... We are a commercial station and we've got to take a break here and we'll be right back with uh, environmental chemistry professor Miriam Diamond from University of Toronto. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Stay with us. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we're back with uh, Professor Miriam Diamond from University of Toronto. We're talking about chemical contaminants and we were just getting into clothes. And um, a, a classic uh, marketplace episode where they bought clothes, many of them online from China. And uh, investigations showed some worrisome substances in there. So let's pick up the story at, at, at that point. What, what did they find? Well, yeah, what did you so find? we we did, did the um, so CBC did the purchasing mm. again from major outlets that uh, lots of people buy from, buy fast fashion from. We did the testing. We we tested for plasticizers in my lab. We tested for um, actually metals were tested in the clothing in the lab of Professor um, Wilkinson uh, in Montreal. Uh, and my colleague, um, Professor Marta Vanier, um, did the testing for PFAS, the forever chemicals. The results were, uh, well, we found all of them. So we found that elevated, we found elevated levels in some kids' products of lead and of cadmium. In fact, in, uh, for example, in a little red purse that was purchased, the lead exceeded the regulations uh, under the Canada Consumer Product Safety Act of 90, mil of 90 parts per million lead and uh, 130 uh, parts per million cadmium. So that little red purse that looked so cute and innocuous was very far from cute and innocuous. In other words, five times higher the lead limit um, than specified in kids' regulations. There now, was what a is the chance of, of that? Yeah, what is the chance of that handling that that purse uh, of the lead uh, crossing the skin barrier? Yeah, thanks. So, um, what's the possibility of the lead going from the purse into the little kid? And I would say that's a risk I would not want to take. Little kids are notorious for putting things in their mouths, all sorts of things, crazy things, including what could look like a very cute red purse. We don't know um, how much of the lead would be transferred onto hands, and hands always go into kids' mouths. We don't know um, how much of that lead would be transferred to, for example, oh, I'm going to put it down in my bedroom and it's going to be transferred to another article of clothing that I could be wearing. So we don't know what the, what the probability of transfer is, but what we do know is that there's lots of opportunity for transfer. Right. 
Now, there, of course, there are all kinds of substances that are used in the manufacture of these products, of manufacture of, of clothes. And as I said, uh, many of them are of concern. And, you know, we've talked uh, on the show about them in the past. We're talking about the, the PFAS, the, the phthalates, the, you know, the flame retardants, etc. And one of my concerns is, is not particularly the presence of these in, in the finished product, but that making that finished product involves all kinds of processes where these chemicals can be released into the environment. So for example, you know, if we talk about the, the phthalates, the plasticizers, which are, are, are so commonly used and, and are found in a number of commercial items, um, or, or the PFAS, the, the, the big risk here is release into the environment during processing, during manufacture, etc. So if we cut down on the purchase of products that are possibly, quote, contaminated, I think the real benefit there is that there will then be fewer of those produced and the, the producers will get the message, you know, that if we're not buying those products, then they better take care. And so it, I, I think that doesn't get all that much discussion, you know, that it's released into the environment during production. I mean, people, of course, you know, worry about, you know, handling that that uh, receipt from the cash register because it may have a trace of BPA. But the fact is that the real risk of BPA is, is during the production of that ink. So. Well, I'm I'm actually going to differ a little bit with you just on the BPA, if, if I may um, have a friendly um, discourse sure. together. <laughs> um, BPA is of concern for people who handle the um, those cash re- cash register receipts. BPA is used to produce the color or the the printing on thermally printed paper, as in it's so common in all the the point of use um, uh, cash out um, machines. The um, there have been several studies that have shown that um, people that cashiers can be very heavily exposed to BPA as a result of constantly handling those cash registers. So that I that I, I agree with that totally, and yeah. that of course is is why they use gloves and which is recommended. But I, I think that the cashier exposure is not the same as the customer occasionally handling the the receipt. True. Anyway, it's. I mean, you know, it's a. It's a, as with everything else. It's it's a, a question of uh, dosage and exposure, right? I mean, we know that BPA is a hazard, but risk, which is a function of hazard, uh, is is variable. It's a question of of exposure. But for sure, I mean, if I were working at a cash register, I I would certainly want to wear gloves and reduce that uh, exposure for sure. No. But what about, there was uh, a very fascinating yeah. study that was done a number of years ago that looked at the occurrence of BPA on paper money. So it turns oh, yeah. out that yeah. lots of paper yeah. money all around the world <laughs> has BPA, traces of BPA on it. The authors thought that that was coming from cash register receipts that were um, stored in wallets. So you're right. You know what else but, is? You know what else is on uh, on paper money? Oh well, yes, I do. It's, yeah, it's cocaine, bacteria, right? <laughs> bacteria viruses. And, I know. Yeah, yeah, and you know that in the U.S. they actually monitor cocaine use by assaying uh, money. 
because uh, <laughs> you know they it, historically you 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 know they were snorting cocaine through rolled up hundred dollar bills. Of course, if you get into that habit, you don't have too many hundred dollar bills left. But but you can actually monitor this, and if you look at currency in Miami and you uh, test it for cocaine, it is significantly different from currency in Denver. So, you know, yeah, currency is a very interesting way to try to monitor uh, substances. <laughs> so in terms of the, the clothing, uh, based on what you've studied in, in, your, in your lab, have you made any changes in your own personal choice of clothing? Well, I've always been a fan of slow fashion. I, I'm not, I don't do fast fashion. I do it for many reasons. You, measure, you mentioned earlier the point that it's not just exposure of the people who are wearing the clothing that may contain elevated levels of chemicals, but we're concerned about chemical exposure and harmful effects throughout the life cycle of that product. You talked about the importance of considering the production of the chemicals and also how people are exposed during manufacturing of the products, of of the clothing. I completely agree with you, and it's very, very poorly studied. There's also the other end of the life cycle, and that's at the end of the life cycle when you discard the clothing. So clothing, fast fashion, is fast for a reason. It falls apart. It, it, the fashion cycle is so astonishingly short that it ends up creating an enormous waste burden. In fact, we're buying now 60% more clothing than 15 years ago. And we I know, hold on to it about half it's as long. Yeah, yeah. Hold that thought again. About- hold, hold that thought again because we're yeah. going to take a little bit of a break okay. here. And we'll be back and uh, talk some more clothes and especially what happens when we wash them and all the microplastics that may leach out. Um, my guest today is Dr. Miriam Diamond, who's a, an environmental chemist, professor, University of Toronto, and we'll continue our conversation after we check traffic. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we're back talking about clothes and uh, how quickly they go out of fashion and what we do with them. Uh, We don't like to think about that, but it is a big problem. Whether they end up in landfill or whether they're recycled, uh, they always release some substances. And uh, I think this is is very apparent when you wash your clothes and you use the dryer after and you look at the lint filter in that dryer. It's astounding how much stuff you find in there. And you don't really see the microplastics, but they're there. So uh, what do you say about that? Laundry and the um, risks of uh, whatever comes out of clothing getting into the environment. Well, laundry is a great source of microfibers. We're finding now, and we, we did a study that showed the abundance of blue jean fibers in, the, in Canadian Arctic sediments. So that sediments are what's found at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. So we found abundances of blue jean fibers that were similar to what you find in the Great Lakes. It was really an astonishing finding for us. So every time you wash your clothes, your clothes release fibers. 
Um, yeah, um, but the difference is that because so much of the clothing now is fast fashion and is very poorly made, fiber release is substantial. We release thousands if not millions of fibers every time we do a load of washing. What I want to point out is that it's not just polyester that got a lot of, um, a lot of press. For example, the polyester fleece jacket. That would just happen to get a lot of press. But we found out that actually washing blue jeans releases more fibers than even a polyester jacket. So you may ask, well, yeah, but that's cotton. Why should I be concerned? Because cotton is actually, cotton isn't cotton anymore. Most cotton contains lots of additives. If it's not to make it stretchy, um, which is conferred by, for example, polyurethane foam, it's got dyes in it, it's got sizers, it's got um, all sorts of additives, which makes those fibers much more persistent and of potential concern um, for fish and other aquatic organisms that end up ingesting them. So, you can also yeah. add to that that, that um, uh, cotton is, of course, uh, a great user of pesticides and, and fertilizers. It's probably the most pesticide-laden crop that, that there is. So when you take a look at the cradle-to-grave analysis of cotton, it's not as pleasing as people think. Absolutely agree. Absolutely. Cotton is not and benign. Yeah, and you know when but you there are, uh, some there are of the, answers here. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. if you want to go just to your one, next one question? more thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, uh, just one more thing is you know sometimes when you wash some of the cheaper fabrics, you see the total amount of dye that leaches out. <laughs> so where does that go? You know that all ends up in the environment and then potentially ends up uh, back uh, in us. Right? Absolutely, that's right. What goes out the washing machine? goes to the wastewater treatment plant, goes to surface waters, and comes back to us in our drinking water, including the forever chemicals, PFAS, that are on our Gore-Tex clothes. Not just Gore-Tex, but also stain-resistant clothing. And, uh, of course, there, there's, what, over 9,000 PFAS that, that you know, have been produced. Of course, not all of them uh, are commercially uh, used, but, but uh, some 3,000 are. And uh, although some of the more troublesome ones have been eliminated, we're not really sure that the replacement ones are all that much uh, uh, better. And the, uh, the the concern here, of course, is is not uh, acute exposure. I mean, nobody thinks that you know we we uh, uh, put on a, a a raincoat that has been treated with some PFAS that we're gonna kick the bucket the next day. The question is the long-term consequences of uh, intake of, of small amounts of this, uh, these substances taken all together. And, you know, there's so much talk, for example, of, of early onset puberty in girls, of, of uh, uh, chemicals acting as obesogens, that is, you know, the, causing people to, to eat more, uh, about lower testosterone levels in the general population. I mean, these, these are, are, are the consequences of our reliance on, on the thousands and thousands and thousands of, of um, novel substances that have been introduced in the environment since the Second World War. And there, there's no simple answer to how we deal with this, but, but 
there are some answers, right? There absolutely are some answers. And I just would like to say that although we've restricted some of the most harmful ones, they are not gone from the environment. Um, there are exemptions for regulations. There's also um, limited uh, testing that some of the chemicals do continue to be used. Uh, and some of the replacement chemicals turn into the banned chemicals as a result of um, our metabolism and transformation in the environment. So the, some of the really bad actors are not gone. So there so are... To, uh, yeah. To give there are some answers. There are, advice, there are some yeah. answers, and um, I, I think we should leave the conversation by pointing to some of the answers um, that include laundering your clothes less, don't just throw them in the wash all the time, adding a filter to your washing machine. Filters are really effective at capturing fibers. In fact, uh, washing machines used to have filters on them a long time ago. They were taken off as a cost-cutting measure, but that cost is showing up in the environment. Don't buy fast fashion. Buy slower fashion. Spend more money. <laughs> Spend, um, instead of spending bits of money on clothing that, don't, that wear out quickly, invest in longer-lasting, more durable fashion. So there's, there, really are, there are solutions that we can implement today. Great. Well, that you know, this was really interesting, and uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time. But we'll have to have you back because these are, you know, interesting areas for me as well. So, you know, we uh, certainly have uh, common threads to discuss here. But just before we leave, let's get down to the really important thing because, as you told me off air, you originally had family from Montreal, and you had a relative who owned Schwartz's. Yes, my uncle, <laughs> High Diamond owned Schwartz's and then so he owned Schwartz's it then transferred into the hands of the consortium uh, involving Celine Dion right oh, so well, yes that's my that's claim a, to fame <laughs> that's a very interesting uh, connection right shout out to my Montreal okay. relative great all right now it just made me hungry for a smoked meat sandwich <laughs> but of course you have to be careful about what's in that too but that's a topic Alas. for another time. Moderation. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks very much for that uh, fascinating conversation. And we will renew this because there will be constantly similar issues to, to talk about. So thanks very much for guesting. Thank and you unfortunately, very much for the conversation. That's it. We're out of time. And until we meet again, same time, same station next week, I'm Josh Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. And cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. Uh,